Recently, Marsha and I have been kind of reminiscing because this coming Friday on the 12th of November is going to be our oldest grandson, Luke's 17th birthday. And it's just hard to believe that he is going to be 17. And we were reflecting back to when he was born. Kelly and Andy were living in Philadelphia at that time. And, and when it got close to time for Luke to be born, Marsha went on up early just to be with Kelly to try to, to help her and get ready for that first baby to come along. I flew up right when we thought it would be close to time for the baby to be born. And I got there, took us all out to Mexican food dinner that night, and she went into labor that evening. That night, it was easy labor when it first began, and so they said, don't come just yet. We went up into the um, kitchen, and there we began to make cupcakes. Kelly wanted us to have cupcakes there in the hospital room to be able to celebrate her birth, uh, Luke's birthday. And so we did. We made the cupcakes. We had them the next day. It was a great celebration. Well, fast forward almost three years to August the 3rd, and it wound up being now that Mara was going to be born, a little girl. Kelly and Andy lived in Dallas. And so a couple of weeks ahead of time, Marsha went down to Dallas to be with Kelly. I mean, that's a challenging time. I mean, now when you have a toddler running around through the house, almost three, and now you're going to be having a baby. So she went down to, to help Kelly. And when it got close, well, Kelly said, you know, I'd love for us to carry on the tradition. I want us to have cupcakes in the room to celebrate Mara's birth. So this time, Marcia and Luke got in there to cook together. He's a great help, smart young man, almost three years old. They got in, they did their cooking. They spread that icing on the top of those cupcakes, getting them ready to take to the hospital. But when they were through, Luke said, Monty, I'd like a cupcake now. Okay, that's fine. You deserve dessert now. So she gave him a cupcake. He took it and turned around to walk towards the living room, took only a couple of steps, and he dropped it. And it fell face down, hit the floor, and Marcia didn't say anything. She just stood there. She wanted to see what he was going to say or what he was going to do. And he looked down at that cupcake. He reached down. He picked it up. Almost all the icing stayed on the floor. He looked at that cupcake and looked up at Monty and said, It dirty. It dirty. And he took his arm and reached up above the counter and sat it down on the counter. And Marcia thought, wow. I mean, to be less than three years old and you already know when something's dirty, you shouldn't eat it, didn't have to be coaxed, put away this dessert he was dying for. She was impressed. Kelly taught him about germs, cleanliness. So he, he put it down on top of the counter and Kelly went around then to go get some a, a wet cloth to come over and wipe all the... Uh, the frosting up, and when she came back around the counter, there she found Luke down on all fours licking the icing up, you know. <laughs> now, the reason that Luke was doing that was he had been reading some research recently <laughs> from the Connecticut College. I told you he's smart. Connecticut College about the same time had come out with the research on the five-second rule. You may remember the five-second rule. If you drop food on the floor and you get it picked up before five seconds, then it's supposed to be safe to eat. 
Well, there are a couple of microbiologists at Connecticut College who wanted to, to really do a little research on this. And so they began trying to check it out. And they found out that if you drop food on the floor and you will get it up before 30 seconds goes by, the bacteria doesn't tend to grow on the food. You actually have 30 seconds to pick up wet food off the floor and bacteria won't be growing on it. If it is dry food, usually it's 60 seconds or more that you have to get it up off the floor before the bacteria begins to grow. Now, that doesn't hold true for E. coli if that's on the floor. <laughs> However, if you have E. coli on your kitchen floor, you got bigger problems. <laughs> no, obviously my grandson, Luke, he knew about this research from Connecticut College, and that's why he was licking up this icing. He was getting his dessert. It's not the way he wanted, and it's not when he wanted. But he knew dessert still comes. It was Paul who said, in all circumstances, give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Dessert comes, not always in the way you want, not necessarily when you want, but in all circumstances, you can give thanks. You know, this morning I want to conclude this sermon series, Give Thanks in All Circumstances. For five weeks, we've been trying to look at the different circumstances in which we find ourselves and ask that question, is it really possible to give thanks in all circumstances? You know, we've looked at circumstances where there is despair, there is strife, there is anger. There... Last week, we looked at grief, death. Today, what I want to do at the closest, I want to look at the circumstance of abundance. Now, you know, you'd think it'd be easy to give thanks in the midst of abundance. And yet I have found that's not the case at all. Because all you have to do is look around and see we are so blessed. And yet how often we feel deprived and we are not grateful. We live in a culture where it's a free market society. And so an advertiser has to tell you all the things you don't have, all the things you need, what it will take for you to be happy. We are so blessed. And I don't just mean in material things. We're free. We are free. You can worship and not be persecuted. Young people standing at an altar rail saying, I want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Can't do that everywhere in the world. We are so blessed. And yet how often in the midst of abundance, we don't feel like we can give thanks. We are not grateful. One of the things you discover is gratitude does not come when you get what you want. Gratitude comes when you recognize what you've already received. Have you recognized what you already received? Robert Emmons and Michael McCullough, they're professors out at, uh, um, in California, there at, uh, in Davis, the University of California, Davis. And they were psychologists and they wanted to try to do a little research on this idea. So what they did was they, they got a group of people and they gave everybody a, a life satisfaction test. And so you could take this test and you had a score of your sense of life satisfaction. Then they came back and they broke them into thirds and said, okay, for this third over here, 
we want to give you a journal. And what we're going to ask is at the end of each day, will you write down all the things that you are thankful for? Then they gave middle group. At the end of each day, will you write down all the things that were a hassle that day? And the last group. Will you write down all the things that happened that you feel were important today? They did it for three weeks, only three weeks. And then they came back and gave everybody a life satisfaction test again. And this group's life satisfaction score went through the roof. <laughs> That's what we've been asking you to do for five weeks. Real simple. Very cheap. Doesn't cost you a thing. We've been suggesting for all these weeks of this series, passing you out journals. Will you take the time each day, whether morning or night, write down three to five things for which you are grateful and to pray about them. Studies show it will change your life satisfaction feeling. Where you feel you are in this world. What a difference it makes. It is enormous. So what I'm going to ask out of you is you still have this journal. There are more if you didn't get one. If you're a guest today, you can pick one up and please take it. There are more pages that you have in here. And why stop? Why not go through the end of this year? We're getting ready to come to Thanksgiving in just a few weeks. And then into the Christmas season. And we're trying to get ready for 2022. Would you like your spirit to be different in 2022? Would you like to have a different kind of feeling of peace and a greater sense of excitement or joy? Then I encourage you, don't quit. It is a spiritual discipline. Give thanks to God the Father. If we do it every day, what a difference it truly will make. Our scripture lesson this morning comes from Paul's letter to the Colossians and and I love what he has to say. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. And give thanks to God the Father. We started five weeks ago looking at Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. And to the letter to the Thessalonians, Paul says, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. I wanted to end with this scripture today. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus and give thanks to God the Father. I wanted us to see that whenever Paul's writing to one of the churches, it doesn't matter who it is, he will talk about giving thanks, gratitude. It's what we have to understand. I know theologians who have said it is impossible to be a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ if you cannot live in a spirit of gratitude. Living in gratitude is fundamental to the faith. It starts by being grateful for the gift of God's grace, grateful to our creator, redeemer, sustainer. No, we give thanks to God. And it is by living in gratitude that we start growing deeper into that trust, into that faith and experiencing the gift of Christ. So, what happens to us when we will do this? I want to leave you with just two thoughts today. The reason it is so important to 
give thanks to God the Father is because it is gratitude that creates, it helps us to deal with our fear, to calm our fears, to be filled with a sense of peace, to soften our anger. Right now, you and I live in a culture that is so angry. You know, I, was, I had meetings this past week, a little retreat with Phil and with Wendy and with Josh, and we were trying to talk about the church and where do we see it going in the future and in our world. And we were talking about the rate of change. Studies show the rate of change in the last 10 years, 15 years, but 10 years, is escalated significantly. Things are changing faster and faster and faster. And because of the internet, because of social media, because of technology, politics, as a society, we have become much harsher, sharper. We are quick to criticize, to say things we would never have said a few years back to be so mean in our spirit, so critical of one another. And it's like anger is just below the surface, ready to come out. I don't want to be that way. I can't change what the rest of the world is doing, but I can change my world, my spirit. I personally want to be different from that. When you and I give thanks to God through the Father, it starts doing something to your spirit to calm your fears, to give you peace, to soften your anger. As I was trying to think about our confirmands today, you know, what did I want to say to them? What did I want to say to this opportunity for these young people who are making this important decision? And I thought, you know, you get this opportunity. What, what do you say? And it made me go back and think about Randy Posh in the last lecture. Yeah, I hadn't thought about Randy Posh in years. I don't know if you've ever read his book, The Last Lecture, Randy Posh. It's probably close to 10 years ago now. If you have not read it, you need to read it. If you have read it, I really encourage you to go back and reread it as I was doing. The Last Lecture. It's about Randy, who was 46 years old. He's a professor at Carnegie Mellon. He works with interactive animation. I mean, one of these guys was just brilliant. He just thinks in different ways. He had worked as an Imagineer for Walt Disney World. He helped to create rides. One of the rides he helped to create was one of my favorites, and that Pirates of the Caribbean. There's even movies about it. He helped to create that ride. Well, he had done that, and then he became a professor at Carnegie Mellon. He loved teaching and inspiring students and continuing to do research. Well, a number of a number of universities a few years back wanted to have what they called the last lecture, asking you if you had one lecture to give, what would you want to say? Now you think about that. If you had one lecture to give, your last lecture, what would you want to say? Well, he thought about it. In the end, they asked him, one person from each university, Carnegie Mellon asked Randy Posh, you give the lecture for us. Well, he was excited about it. He started working on it. And then he wasn't feeling quite right, and he went to the doctor. They ran some tests. He had pancreatic cancer, 46 years old, 10 tumors in his pancreas. 
They said, we, we give you about six months to live. So the young man who's been asked to give the last lecture to represent the university is suddenly giving his last lecture. Well, word kind of spread, and when he came out to do it, it was a really large hall. I mean, it was packed, standing room only, hundreds and hundreds of students. And he came out to speak to them. One of the first things he did, he came out, jumped down, started doing push-ups. He did his push-ups, and he got up and said, I'm still in strong, I'm great health. I'm in good spirits, I'm having fun. But they tell me I'm going to be dead in six months. So I've really been thinking about that. And what lessons have I learned that I would want to share? And so he started telling a story about how when he was a boy growing up, more than anything, he wanted to be a professional football player. Well, you look at Randy, and he's not exactly big in stature. He wasn't going to be a football player. But that was his dream. I'm going to be a professional football player. And so he played peewee football, nine years old. And he said we had a coach, Coach Jim. Coach Jim had been a linebacker for Penn State. He was 6'4", a big, strong man. And he said all the kids just stood in awe of Coach Jim. And he said, we got out there for our very first practice. Got out there for practice and heard all these boys and we were all fired up. And then we, one kid's looking around and realized, Coach, you didn't bring any footballs. How, how are we going to practice football if you didn't bring any footballs? And Coach Jim said, how many kids can be on the field playing football at a time? Well, 11 on offense, 11 on defense. It's 22 kids. Right, right. How many kids at any one moment can be touching the football? One. Okay. We're going to learn what the other 21 kids are supposed to be doing. <laughs> because everybody has a job. And if you know what your job is and you know fundamentally what you're supposed to do, then one day we'll move on to the advanced part about what to do when you touch a football. But what we're going to look at are what are the fundamentals that all of us need to understand about this game. And Randy said he drilled us and drilled us and drilled us for practice after practice after practice with no footballs because he wanted us to understand the fundamentals. And then Randy Posh would say, I've discovered that there are certain fundamentals of life you need to learn. What I would say to you is, I've learned in the last two months that it is really, really, really silly to get angry. When somebody cuts you off, why waste your feelings being angry? If somebody says something that hurts your feelings, or don't call when they said they were going to call, or they were rude, it is really, really, really silly to waste your day being angry. If there's anything I could go back and do a little different, I would spend less time being angry and more time being grateful. How much time do we spend being angry? And if you knew you had less than six months to live? If it was your last lecture? Is that how you want to spend your time? Or do you want to be more grateful? Paul tries to say to every church that he is beginning, give thanks to God through the Father. 
in all circumstances. Give thanks, for that is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. It will help you to calm your fears, to have a sense of peace, to soften your anger. And so secondly, to be able to say, so whatever you do, whatever you do in word or deed, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. You know, if you're choosing to live in a spirit of gratitude, it's almost like it just kind of flows. It's easier to do kind things, things you do in the name of the Lord Jesus. It's just so much easier to be kind, to be nice, to want to bless life. Again, we are living in a world where we're always being told it's about me. What do I need? What do I want? How are you treating me? And Paul tries to tell us something totally different. It's not about me. Whatever I say, whatever I do, will I do it in the name of the Lord Jesus? What does it mean to be the person in this world who's choosing to be kind, to bless? What a difference it would make in our spirit and the way in you and I feel about ourselves and our world. You know, I, I was reading about Nicholas Winton. I, I saw him in a newscast a couple years ago now, but I've never forgot him. Such an amazing man. Nicholas Winton. When I saw him on this newscast, he was 105. 105. Sharp as a tack. I mean, he was moving a little slower, but he's still moving great. 105 years old. And he was actually in the Czech Republic being awarded the medal, kind of like our presidential medal of freedom, by the president of the Czech Republic. And you started listening to a story, I mean, it really intrigued me. And it, and it went back to 1938. Nicholas was all of 29 years old. He was living in London. He was a stockbroker. He was single. He was doing very well. He enjoyed life. Life was great for him. He had already plans, made plans that year to go to Switzerland for Christmas. He could hardly wait to go. And then in the end, right before Christmas, he gets a letter from a friend saying, you need to come to Prague. Do not go to Switzerland. Come to Prague now. And so he gave up going to spend Christmas in Switzerland to go to Prague. And when he got there, what he saw throughout the streets were all these German soldiers. They had not officially invaded Czechoslovakia. They had not closed the borders, but things were happening. Things were tense. You could feel the winds of war blowing. If you spoke out against what you were seeing, you disappeared. Jews were being harassed. They were so frightened. It was getting so hard and you could see it happening quickly. They couldn't, the Jews could not get out. Well, in the end, Nicholas looked around and what he saw was the face of God in so many people. He couldn't ignore it. Get on the train, went back to London, went to the local officials to say, can we bring, could I bring children here as refugees? No, no, you got to be this kind of organization. You got to check these boxes. You know, all the red tape you would expect. So he got some volunteers and they got stationary. We're the International Children's Development of da, da, da. I mean, just kind of made all kind of like, this is a big deal. And then he went back to them and said, now, can I get these children? And they said, if you have a foster family lined up for a child 
and you can put up this much money as a deposit to show that they can be taken care of and not a problem for the state, you can bring a child as a refugee. So Nicholas Winton, he's no politician. He is no um, successful businessman. He's not someone who's super wealthy. He's not some royalty. He's just like you and me. He starts traveling around England going, would you be a foster family? Would you be a foster family? Would you be a foster family? I need to raise some money for these kids to come. He's raising money and looking for foster families. And then he gets on the train and goes back to Prague. And he shows up and, and now what he has to do is to say, would you give me your children? Would you give me your child? I will take them to England. We'll take care of them and protect them. And when this war is over, when this is passed, then you can be reunited. What would you do? You're living in a country when you're seeing the Jews being persecuted and they can't get out. And a stranger comes to you and says, do you want to give me your child? I'll protect them. He didn't know what would happen, but he told him, I'll be here at such a street to take the children to the train. And that day when he arrived, parents lined the street as far as you could see. He took as many children as he had places for. He got on the train, went back home to England. He began to go, here's your child, here's your child, here's your child. And he began to place them in these foster homes. He looked for more foster families. He began raising more money, jumped on the train, went back. Do you want to give me your child? I mean, can you imagine knowing what may happen and being willing to entrust your child to a stranger? He would make seven of these trips. 669 children he would get to England and placed. He had raised enough money now and found enough of them. It was gathering momentum in England. People were hearing what was going on. They wanted to be a part of the solution. And he came back and he was ready for 250 children, the biggest train that he would have. And September the 1st, 1939 happened. It was the official beginning of World War II. And they closed the borders. None of those 250 children were ever heard from again. Almost none of the parents were ever reunited with their children. The final solution by the Nazis was underway. And so many in Czechoslovakia would die. He went back to London, seeing he couldn't get any more children out. And he enlisted. He became a fighter pilot. And he would fight through World War II. When the war was over... He got married to Greta. They had children, went back to being a stockbroker. But he never talked about what he had done. Never a word. Fifty years went by. They were in their 80s. And he and Greta were deciding to downsize, to sell their home. They went up in the attic and they were going through all the stuff in the attic and they came across this big album and she started looking at this album, and here's the picture of all these children and letters. And she said, what is this? And he began to tell her the story of what he had done. And she's saying, Nicholas, 
We have to tell the story. There may be children out there who are looking for a sibling. There may be a parent somewhere that is looking for a child. We need to tell this story. This is a part of our history in England. And so she began to tell the story. It was easy to document. They had all the government forms. They had pictures. They had everything. Easy to document. And so they're sharing and everyone was just stunned to think there's 669 children from Prague who now had been settled for 50 years here in England. Well, they had a show in that day. It was called That's Your Life. And what they would do was they would get someone and bring them on and kind of tell their life story and what they've done. And then at the end, they would have gone and found somebody important in that person's life that they hadn't seen in years and bring them. And suddenly they would come out and you'd suddenly have this great reunion. It always felt so good. And so in the end, they brought Nicholas. They asked him to be on the show and he finally agreed. And so they told his story and showing pictures of all these children and what he had done. And finally they came to the end and they said, Nicholas, tonight there's someone here who owes you their, their life. It's Vera Linsing. And she's sitting right beside you. He turns and here's this lady right beside him. And she is weeping. She is just sobbing and he looks at her and he begins to sob. And he jumps up and they begin to hug each other. And then the host says, is there anybody else here tonight who owes their life to Nicholas? And the entire audience rose to their feet. The children and their children and some grandchildren It's when he was 105 that he was invited back to the Czech Republic. If you go there today to Prague, you'll find a statue there at the train station of Nicholas, life-size, holding a child in another child's hand. They wanted to remember him and to say thank you. In the end, he was being interviewed. As you can imagine, so many people wanted to talk to him about what he had done and why he had done it and how he had done it. And there was a 16-year-old student who was given the opportunity to interview Nicholas Winton. And this 16-year-old student sat down and was saying, and this is when he's 105, tell me about World War II. Tell me about what you did. How did you get the children? What did it feel like? She's going through all of these things. But she finally comes to the end and she says, and my final question, is there any advice you would like to give to my generation Anything you'd like to tell my generation? And Nicholas sat there and he kind of just stroked his chin thinking. Finally he said, don't live a life where you just try to do no wrong. Every day be prepared for the opportunity to do good. And whatever you do, in word and deed, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus and give thanks to God the Father. That is how you truly can give thanks in all circumstances 
for it is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. It's in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer. Amen.